Welcome once again to Jim and Pat's Glasgow West End Chat. Everything about Glasgow's West End. My name's Jim Byrne and the Pat in the title is Pat Byrne. And this is episode 26. In this episode I talk to Eva Bolander. Eva is Glasgow's Lord Provost and I was particularly pleased to go along to the city chambers in Glasgow, right next to George Cross, George Square, I should say, because I've known Eva for about 15 years, both as a friend and as a fellow web developer. About 15 or 16 years ago, whenever it was, I'm not exactly sure, Eva came along to one of my training courses uh, which was connected to an organisation I was working for and I was teaching accessible website design at the time. As far as I know, that's what put Eva on the path to becoming a website designer herself. However, that's not the path uh, that led Eva to become Glasgow's Lord Provost. That was her community activity uh, in Partick. So although Eva Bolander clearly, from the name, did not grow up, well, I'm going to say not grow up, of course she could have grown up in Glasgow, but it doesn't sound like she grew up in Glasgow with that name, she actually comes from Sweden, and she came over here, uh, I think she said in her 20s, I'll need to check that, in the interview, but she became a community activist, and from that, that's the kind of route that led her to uh, a couple of years ago becoming the Lord Provost of Glasgow. Unbelievable. What, what an amazing, <laughs> amazing thing to happen, to come over here from another country and become the Lord Provost of a major city in that country. That is amazing. Anyway, enough of me. Uh, if you've been enjoying the podcast, please subscribe. Please get in touch if you've got any questions. Uh, and please, what else? Please rate us. Give us some stars on the iTunes. Okay, enough of that. Well, let's go up to the uh, city chambers in Glasgow and chat with Eva Bolander. Right, Eva. Yes, hello, <laughs> As Jim. I said, basically the idea of the interview is to... For you to, for me to find a bit more about you, your journey from being a young person to being where you are now, which is obviously Lord Provost of Glasgow, which I'm sure is not the right title, but you can tell me what the right title is, uh, and some of the things along the way that you think are significant thing in your life. Uh, so that's my introduction. Over to you, if you can maybe start by introducing yourself. Okay, I'm uh, Councillor Eva Borlander, Lord Provost of Glasgow, a Lord Lieutenant of Glasgow as well. It's a dual title here in Glasgow, which right. is quite interesting. Um, um, as you can hear from my dialect, my uh, I'm not a born and bred Glaswegian, uh, but happen to be or become Lord Provost anyway. Thanks, I would say very much to the fantastic people of Glasgow. I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> of course you would. <laughs> uh, no, so uh, I've been living in Glasgow for a long time, but I originally come from Stockholm, Sweden. Right. Um, started to travel over here to Scotland in the early 80s. Okay. Thanks to that, I was then learning to play the pipes, the bagpipes. Of course, that's right. 
So, so you grew up in Sweden? Yeah. Tell me a tiny bit about your parents and where you grew up. Yeah, I grew up in, well, I was born, then my family was living in Stockholm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my family, both on my father's and my mother's side, have long, many generations from Stockholm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, which is now, because Stockholm has been growing so much, those people been moving in. It feels quite unique, actually, nowadays. Right. Uh, but they come from the sort of working class part of Stockholm, the Söder Malm, the south side of the city, right. which has become lately very trendy, but then was really working class background, um, living in small, comparatively single ends with many children, etc. Um, both my grandparents were very involved in the um, uh, trade union movement in Sweden and okay. um, very engaged with that and being uh, you know foreman and representatives in the trade union so That's I come from quite a yeah strong you can say social democratic background if you would in a way pinpoint me politically in that respect but that was just taken for granted almost in Sweden yeah. because Sweden was social democratic for such a long time and to be honest that is one of the things I find I found different when I came over here uh, in the respect of how people approach to get things done. Right. Um, Sweden, you were just, something needs to be done, like when I moved here, the, here, the back lane, uh, where I was staying, they need to sort it out. And I was just surprised that there wasn't any association who was dealing with this, and right. just people coming together and get on with it, get it sorted. Right. So that's part of the character of where you came from, that Very you brought here? Yeah, no, because I remember as a child, I think we were 10, 11 or something, like set up the first... Um, uh, club association for collecting comics and having auctions and selling them to each other and so on. But they had a constitution and everything. Right, okay. So that came almost, you know, with, um, <laughs> with the mother's milk to know how to do that. Not quite, but... Yeah, um, yeah, that's interesting. Because you know, I don't think I had that particular upbringing myself. Not that I knew anything about politics or community or anything when I was a kid. Probably all I knew was riding my bike and running about in the street. You know, <laughs> there wasn't much... You know, of that kind of organising. My parents weren't part of any union or anything. Yeah. Working class folk. But, uh, so, so what made you decide? Yeah, I think I'll go over and uh, <laughs> to Glasgow. Well, it was. When I think it was about six, seven years of age when I first was hearing um, pipes being played live, right. and it was just a community day, and it was a pipe band there, and I don't know if it was a Scottish pipe band, if it was a Swedish pipe band right. playing in the Scottish tradition, uh, who came and performed, and I was just part of the pun, blown away by the music and the, the, the costumes and the whole spectacle mm-hmm. and such and I just loved the music right. and from that on every year I used to keep my eye open for uh, the Edinburgh Military Tattoo which used to be given on Swedish television as well oh, okay. so I was oh it's always September time this time usually so right. keep my eye open for that and then when I was in comparatively um, higher secondary school there was just big posters up asking me if I uh, asking if people wanted to join and learn to play the pipes. Right. So, of course, I went for that then. That's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> but prior to that, I had also been... Um, I played other instruments. I used to play the violin and I played... Uh, well, everyone had to learn the recorder to start off, etc. Yeah. Yep. So, was I mean, is, music was like... Uh, was it just a common thing in schools that everybody learned an instrument? And this was just a... Yes, I would say, if I remember right, uh, everyone had learned to play the recorder, mm-hmm. and that wasn't always pleasant in a class of, of was, 25. Nobody likes the recorder. Why, I know. <laughs> why force the recorder on kids? 
very strange idea. <laughs> I know, I know. Anyway, that was what people tend to start with, and mm. then you would put in, well, ask if you wanted to play some other instrument, and then the, the music teacher um, asked if I wanted to start to play the violin, and so mm. I did that. Okay, so what about your education beyond primary school? I mean, well, in Sweden, it's, it's sort of, the system is slightly different than here, of course. So you finish primary, secondary, and third level school, foundation school, which everyone has to go through right, right. at 16. Right, okay. uh, and then you go on to uh, what's called a gymnasium program. It hasn't got anything to do with gymnastics, but it's sort of the German terminology for right. higher secondary school comparatively. Right. Okay. And they choose different programs, um, but each program are quite wide, it's not quite as concentrated on subjects as you study here when you go to higher secondary school. So my program was a uh, natural science program, so I was studying chemistry, biology, physics, etc., mm-hmm. mathematics. But also on top of that you did history, psychology, I did two languages, uh, English and French, but I actually swapped and did Spanish as well a year. So it's a much wider spectrum of subjects okay, you do okay. in, in the sort of the general And do you think that's education? a good idea? I, I think it's a good idea. I do think it's a good <laughs> idea because uh, I think it gives you a wider spectrum of uh, future education you can choose from oh. then or different careers you can and, choose And that's from. influenced how you think about the world, do you think? Is uh, yes, because I mean I have wide aspect of interest. I also have had a wide different of works I've been doing through mm. my life. So, um, and I think, but I think it's, people are different. All people are different. I am a person who more like to have an overview and I like to know lots of things. I really love to get into new projects and that has helped me sort of doing new things all the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And if I have a wide range of experience, though it might not be so in-depth as someone else who maybe yeah. likes to expert, become an expert in a subject and go in-depth in one subject. Right. But I think it's just different people are, are different. Yeah. Some prefer to be the expert and go in very deeply in one subject and concentrate full in that. And I like to have a smorgasbord of lots of different Give things. Give you some kind of perspective, I suppose. You know. Yeah. So is that the equivalent? That's not, that's not like the university, is it? No, that's, that comes after. Right, so yeah. you went to university? So yes, you... yes, I went to university. I did take a couple of years in between and worked. Uh, actually, as a substitute teacher for a couple of years. Right, okay. um, as a summer job, I then took a work in a museum because I was interested in possibly becoming an archaeologist. Right. So I was working on a big Viking exhibition we had in Stockholm right. in the 1990, sorry, I'm getting into the wrong decade here, 1980, I think it was. Um, and after that, because I was working in the museum, I got in contact with lots of archaeologists and so on, I decided to go to university and study. It was a culture communication program, it was called. Um, but in that you could concentrate on certain subjects and I concentrated on archaeology mm. and other supplementary subjects that would support that because I really liked the environment of working in the museum and I was very interested in um, not maybe academics and research as such but more how you uh, actually educate and told people about mm-hmm. old times mm-hmm. and history and prehistory. Yeah, it's interesting because, just as an aside, I interviewed Jesper Eriksson who's one of the uh, assistant curators at the Hunterian. Ah. Also from Sweden. Oh, I didn't know. I, th- <laughs> uh, I think his parents are from Sweden. I think most of his, he spent most of his life in the UK. Uh, but just interesting you saying that because 
he was interested in art as a kid uh, and then discovered that the, he was also interested in artifact, artifacts, is that the yeah. word I'm trying to come out with there, just, just to put those two words together. But he was interested in, he discovered that he really wasn't an artist or he couldn't become an artist, but he was interested in uh, the galleries and things and, and the perfect job for him was to mix the art interest he had with this kind of you know, curation of, mm-hmm. of things. Yeah. <laughs> so he did, he did the recent Scottish coin exhibition, which I don't know if you know, were in the Hunterian. But it was just because you say that, and because he come, he he originally came from Sweden, it made yeah. me think about that. But it might have been something to do with education. Yeah, that, that uh, leads people up that path. I don't know. Or, I don't know if he was educated in Sweden. Obviously, yeah, or, actually, or no, here. Yeah, I'm, I'm wrong. I don't think he was educated in yeah, Sweden. Yeah, yeah. No, but I find sort of the because when I moved from working well, well studying uh, the natural sciences, I was looking into possibly going into environmental studies and things like that. But uh, I choose archaeology instead as my main subject. And but what I found really interesting was because as an archaeologist, you had to combine those sciences as well yeah. as sort of the more culture aspect of things. Yeah, yeah. And being an archaeologist is very much like a being a detective puzzling together yeah. lots of different clues from various aspects so of course you have the artifacts as I say the pottery and the metal finds and the objects you find but then you're constructing you do, a story yeah yeah. From it. yeah but now the, and it was just emerging then uh, obviously you can use science to so much detect so much things as well using ground radar to detect structures in the ground or uh, you know um, microscopic fragments of various um, uh, vegetable materials, seeds and things mm-hmm. like that to trace what food they were eating. So there's lots of okay. overlaps there. So when you're studying that, what age are you then? Yeah. I'm at 20, 21. Right, yeah. okay. So you're, started. The, you're very much a point in your life where you can be going anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Are you thinking, I'm going to become an archaeologist? Yes, and I was working. I was working with that for ten years in Sweden as well for the museum, yeah, Museum of National Antiquities. Because right. while I was studying, I was also continuing to work for the Museum of, of National Antiquities in right. Stockholm. Right. As, uh, well, first yes, as an attendant in the in the collections, but then later on in the education department right. as well, and taking tours and child, school children etc. around the museum and creating classes for them. So I actually had a parallel. I was studying at the same time as I also was right. working. That's interesting because that's quite a period of time in your life. You know, that's a chunk of your life. So you could have been doing, you could be doing that still. I mean, that's a career, isn't it? A, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that could kind of been. work. Could have been, yes. <laughs> but, but you didn't keep doing that, so obviously something else happened. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the meantime, as, as you obviously heard before, I, I started to play the bagpipes, yeah. and that was a quite a big part of my life in respect that um, it is a community. The yeah. piping world is a community, which is a worldwide community. Um, that was one of, well, initially when I heard the pipes when I, was, when I was six, seven years old, I never thought I would be able to play them because right. that was something you only did in Scotland. Right. Okay. was my perception. Right, okay. So you were aware of Scotland at that age through the pipes? Yes. Right. Yes. What did you think of Scotland? Just out of interest, what did you think Scotland was? Uh, <laughs> well, it's interesting because, well, not when I was that young, but later on in high secondary comparatively, um, I was studying history as well. There was another subject mm-hmm. we did. And we actually studied the Scottish Enlightenment as one of the topics. Oh, right, okay. okay. Uh, and I remember, you know, also the talking, the history teacher talking about the different uh, royal families and so on mm-hmm. prior to the union of the, of the crowns. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had studied quite a lot of Scottish history, right. just as part of our ordinary history course of, for Europe. 
Well, you're in the right place, actually. If you're interested in the Scottish Enlightenment, yeah. walk into the Ontarian Gallery and see all the portraits on the wall. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> all the major figures. And, uh, yeah. I was actually talking to Jerry Crawlers about that as well, because he's particularly interested in the 18th century uh, and all the, all the folk that thinking and making art and painting, etc. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I, I did uh, a course in Scottish art probably 20 years ago. I can't remember anybody's name. You know. <laughs> I'm interested in it. And I love, I love art, but I can't have a conversation because I couldn't tell you the names of the characters that are involved in the stories. Yeah. <laughs> but it is a really Absolutely. fascinating time in history, you know, particularly yeah, in Scotland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, anyway, so what you were talking about my career and what I did and so on. And so, uh, parallel to obviously studying at university and so on uh, and working in the museum, I had my piping friends and my piping mm-hmm. community as well. So, I started to travel over here. The first time I was in Scotland was in 1980. Right, okay. Uh, so that was ongoing at the same time. And that time. was part of coming over here with the pipe band? Yeah. Is it like a competition you were going well, to? Well, initially it was just me and a friend who started to play at the same time. Right. We mm-hmm. came over to do some courses and so on, and then travel around to the games and just right. hearing piping okay. in various places. And what do you remember of that, that trip? Oh, God, 1980. It was interesting because it actually started off with a two-weeks course in St Andrews. Right, in okay. country dancing. Oh, goodness me. Because <laughs> <laughs> there was involvement in all this Scottish culture. Yeah. Uh, but it was fascinating. Absolutely lovely place to be for a summer, a um, couple of weeks. Uh, and we also had piping tradition in that course. Yeah. Uh, but that wasn't the main thing at that point. But uh, we felt it was just good and safe to come to a course or something like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, we stay, you know, you, you know, talking to people and so on. Uh, and it opened up lots of doors. You met lots of people there who were very friendly and yeah. kind. And you know, well, St Andrews is such a nice place. I mean, yeah. it, there's nothing more Scottishy than turning up at St Andrews. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah. the old cathedral yes. falling to pieces and the university, and mm-hmm. you know, you get the and golf, the golf course, course and, <laughs> and beautiful sand beaches. Yeah, exactly. So you must have thought, well, this is Scotland. Yeah, this is Scotland. Absolutely. <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's very different, of course, uh-huh. from Glasgow and yeah. Edinburgh. No, yeah. But, of course, we didn't want to stay there for two weeks. Went, I think we had about a month here, so another two weeks we went travelling around. We, uh, one of the people, one of the friends we met in, at this course, he might just come to Edinburgh, so we stayed in his flat for a while. Um, and he had another friend up in Stornoway, which we had planned to go right, okay. to, so he introduced us to that, and we just went up there for a while. And, but, uh, and that was so typical or has been so typical all my travels before I moved over here well afterwards as well how friendly and open people are right. start inviting you and you know introducing you to other people and so on it's been incredible yeah well that's good that's, a, that's, a, that's good to hear that yeah. <laughs> now, Scotland yeah. is a very friendly country yeah. Yeah. and I would say also an openness because when I started to play the bagpipes, I felt a bit, oh, here I'm coming, intruding on your culture. Right, okay. I felt a little bit like that. Um, and I had a chat with a good old friend who actually just died a couple of years ago, an ex-pipe major of Scots Guards, George Kilgar. Sorry, Bob Kilgar. George was his brother who made my pipes, by the way. Right, uh, okay. But Bob Kilgar, um, and we've talked about, because he was living in Copenhagen, we had lots of exchange with him, all the Scandinavian countries in regards to piping, had lots of exchange. And we're talking to him about this and said, but no, but no, this is just great that you're coming and, and taking part in other culture. We are honoured by that. Yeah. And you help us keeping this going by buying pipes and music and things like that and tradition. 
it's just helping other culture going. It's great. That's lovely. Yeah. And that was his attitude, and that is an attitude I have encountered in many, many, many places. Yeah, but I suppose this is something, uh, an issue for some people, this cultural appropriation, is that the word? Is that, is that I the think right? it's just, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's just, John yeah, is just very strange. Yeah. Culture has overspread. Yeah. And you can see that through prehistory, history and so on, culture travels. Yeah. And if you should suddenly try to stop culture to travel, what are we then? That is when you're trying to preserve people, races, cultures. I think you're threading on very dangerous territory then. I think music, though, is one of these areas where that happens a lot. And as much as people take on board influences from from all over the world because of the individual having a passion for music. Yeah. And music itself is a very communal thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you learn and you, you play with other people, you learn from other people, you listen to music and it seeps into you, <laughs> you're influenced by it. Absolutely. But there is always some people who will say, oh, you're just trying to, you know, steal this and use it as your own. But of course, you know. No, I, I think it's a very strange, strange phenomenon. That's a, it's a strange phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, I've actually had, as you know, I play music myself. Yeah. And uh, I've, experience some of that in a slightly different way. Uh, I mean, I won't tell you a big long story, but for a few years I was playing folk clubs. Right? Yeah. Uh, but, I was, but I'm very interested in American music. I love American music. I love old country music. I love mm-hmm. what they now call Americana uh, back then. I don't, it was probably quite a new phrase back then. But for a wee, wee while, maybe three or four years, I played a lot of folk clubs in Scotland up north or wherever, you know. And occasionally people would say to me, Jim, uh, I don't know why you're playing that, that American music. <laughs> why don't you play some music from your own town, Jim? Uh, and that was meant as a kind of, you know, yeah. give me a row. So I would always say, what you mean, wet, wet, wet? And <laughs> <laughs> the same I find it very quite interesting because where does the Americana music come from? Exactly. It's exactly. a mixture of lots of different yeah. and definitely some of the Scottish music. Lots of Scottish is in there and Irish well. music went over to America. Yeah. It got changed in America. It became what you know, country music. Yeah, yeah. And then comes back. Mm-hmm. And what also what I found interesting is a lot of these folk I mean obviously these are just exceptions, most of the people are nice people. Uh, but they would maybe say cite people from the 60s and the 70s who these regarded as folk musicians who were kind of, you know, the epitome, epitome of the folk movement. But these very people were folk that were incredibly influenced by American music and the, uh, American sort of political folk, yeah. you know, uh, the, you know, the, I don't know, the sort of folk that Bob Dylan was influenced by. These apparent... Scottish yeah. folk musicians were also incredibly influenced by the same people, so yeah. there is no uh, sort of pure form of anything. No, I think it's you when know. you're trying to sort of enforce delimitations, borders, separation between yeah. things, you're on a dangerous ground generally. Absolutely, absolutely. Anyway, take it back to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking sort of the decade of the 80s on my mm-hmm. behalf, so on. Obviously, the piping was one big influence, the archaeology was another one, and I, I did something which I also formed my life in some respect. Uh, as an archaeologist, I took part in uh, 
sailing with a replica of a mm. of a 12th century ship right okay which was very very interesting as well so that was another side but that was part of because in the archaeology as I said before I was interested in how you convey the information about the past times and the prehistory yeah. and so on um, and working very much in the education department and we did what now would be called, I don't know, experimental archaeology, when you actually try things out, right. making things, making food as they did, uh, creating clothing, etc., and artifacts mm. as they were used then, and letting, especially the children try them, was really, really interesting. And but um, So I came in contact with lots of people who were interested in the same. Uh, so, well, this ship was initially constructed as a, as a replica of a found uh, a ship that was found when they were restoring the Parliament House in Stockholm. Right, okay. um, they had to dig down to the sort of quayside and the waters around there and they found a fair number of ships. So this was built. So it was a 22 metre long square rigged ship with no mod cons whatsoever on. Okay. Uh, so we were testing it in various ways, see how we could sail it and if it could go up against the wind and so on. So you sailed it for a... Did you actually go on a trip on it? We went on trips, yes. Uh, we could do... With, I think the longest we did was like week-long sailings. Right. Um, that must have been quite difficult. Yeah. It was interesting. Okay, <laughs> but we didn't only sail. I would say I'm saying sailing. It was a fair bit of rowing involved in right. it as well. Um, you know, so it looked like a Vatican ship, more or less. Yeah. Um, uh, so they had uh, eight pairs of oars. Right. Hard work. Hard work, but yeah. very interesting. Yeah, interesting. Okay. So do you think, did that kind of feed into, I mean, you're, again, you're at that point in your life, so you're now in your later 20s, I yeah, imagine. yes. <laughs> what are you thinking now? Are you think, have you got some kind of idea in your head of what you want to do? Now people say, I want to do this when I grow up. Uh, or, or are you thinking, actually, I'm on the path? I'm on the path because I work as an archaeologist yeah. and so on, which I really enjoy. Um, I decided to change path in the end of the 80s. Uh, I had been working within the museum with a major reorganisation of the museum and mm-hmm. uh, trying to get it more publicly open, if you put it that way, right, okay. uh, in this approach. And in the long end of it, I... Um, I had been, well, I was slightly disappointed because it more or less turned out to be a change of names of departments more than an actual change in how things were done. Surface change rather. Yes. Um, During this process, I had been um, in contact with a consultancy company who was providing training material, etc., for leadership management and so on, uh, communication. Um, It was a friend of me who was working there, so I had contacted her and asking her about certain things in regards to this uh, manage- change of management a uh, certain management uh, uh, I'm losing my words here the reorganisation of the museum um, and in the in 1990 she was asking if I wanted to join them instead oh right okay that's interesting right. and at that point I felt the career with them in the archaeology it was really hard to find a permanent job I was all constantly on short contracts right, okay. uh, projects employments etc it was hard to find a permanent job at that point in time I felt like it would be quite nice to have a permanent job actually yeah. and I don't know if I said that earlier on but I really like to get into new things I love this beginning of a project the beginning yeah. of something just finding out about exciting yeah yeah. Um, so that is maybe one of the reasons why I have changed career a few times right, okay. and this was one of them in that respect. So you were kind of poached in some sense 
that right? Yeah, yeah. you can say all, that, yeah. This person's smart, we'll get uh-huh. them. <laughs> we'll, we'll grab them. <laughs> so this company was working as the main distributor in Scandinavia for, I don't know if you may have a video arts, John Cleese company. Oh, was right. doing training videos. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. I vaguely so, know a wee teeny bit about that. I uh-huh. think I've seen it on the telly. Some of them hilarious and, yeah. and very good, and yeah. have always got a good point in them. So yeah. he was just one of that was just one of the producers. We had many other producers mm-hmm. who were producing similar training videos because yeah. we're talking about you know pre-internet, pre-digitalization yeah. of about everything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was the good old video cassette then. Uh, so I started work for them, and I worked with uh, part of choosing what sort what assortment of. Uh, books we would have to sell and, and use in various trainings uh, um, trainings, and I was also started to work as a, an editor you can say for producing training packages mm-hmm. where we combined the written word the training manuals and, and audio and of course videos as well so I made packages in customer service for example in presentation techniques and uh, yeah communication was one of them as well Okay, so how long did you do that for? Uh, about four years. Right. And again, something must have happened. <laughs> well, something happened, yes. Well, I had uh, I had met a man here in, in Glasgow. Oh, right. Okay. So he's going yeah. back and forward for a bit. And that 95... Sounds, sounds fairly significant. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously, during all this time, I have been coming back and forward to Glasgow as well during the summer times. Right. Oh, well, not only Glasgow, Scotland, I should say. Though Glasgow, after I spent... I can't remember. Yeah, no, I know which year it was. 83... 1983, I spent a weekend here in Glasgow. Once I come across here, we usually had Edinburgh as our main centre where we stayed, but came over the weekend, stayed in Glasgow. I went to see Glasgow Arts, the Burrow Collection, um, and a few other things. And we did, of course, the Cathedral and the mm-hmm. Necropolis and things like that, which the main tourist attractions in Glasgow. Yeah, yeah. Then. Uh, and after spending this weekend in Glasgow, it's always been Glasgow. Right. And it was just purely because the people we met and how easy it was to communicate and chat with people everywhere. And right. um, yeah, just a lovely, lovely city. And of course, you know, the, one of the problems in the UK and probably in Scotland and England is we don't learn other languages uh, to the same extent as other countries do, including Sweden. So you're arriving here probably speaking better English than the Scots. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt that. <laughs> but, uh, but it was interesting because, uh, obviously, I, yeah, I have learned English since, uh, oh God, I was 10, I think, when yeah. I started learning English. And prior to that, because Sweden don't uh, um, dub TV programmes, they don't um, uh, right. produ- uh, have voiceovers, they usually just have a, a subscrip- uh, subtitling. Yeah. So... Um, mm. You have a hard, I've had a hard English and you've seen lots of English television programmes and you hear the language. Mm. So I think that helps a lot as well. Yeah, and I suppose, I mean, it's not, I suppose there's no, no one simple explanation as to why folk here don't tend to learn so many languages. Uh, but I think there's certainly a wee bit in the mix of, maybe not so much in Scotland, but it's the kind of superiority complex. <laughs> there's many people who speak English. Yeah. And I think... I do think a lot of people are learning languages, but yeah. the problem is that they don't get to practice them. Yeah, that's true, that's true. So uh, it's like if you can get away with English most places yeah. around the world, it's... it's yeah, why bother? Yeah, I yeah. suppose that's probably in the mix as well. Yeah. Okay. So you come over here, so so you've been doing that for four years, are you thinking, I'm going to stay and live in Scotland? 
because I fell in love with somebody well, we and I went to yeah, stay no, with we, we decided in so. We were sort of commuting back and forward a few years um, and, and just like, you have to give it a try at some point. Right. So I came over here in 95. 95, yeah. right, okay. And uh, did you have a job to go to or? No, no, I didn't. So I just come over here looking for jobs and so mm. on. Uh, managed to get some temping work right. by the autumn of that. Uh, then I decided to do a course getting women into business right. um, okay. because I had been thinking of setting up a business myself in regards of uh, setting up a magazine for actually for the uh, piping world. Ah, right. okay. um, so it was one of the business idea ideas I had. I had a few other ones as well, but that was one of them. Um, so I did the course getting women into business. Um, uh, my then partner and I we had. Then I got pregnant. I had a child in '97. It's my daughter born, uh, and then I was home for a while because it was a bit hard to combine. I, I was doing some work in between, mainly mainly temping, office temping. I would mm-hmm. say I found it quite tricky to find to get into a job. Uh, I don't know if it was because I had been changing career from archaeology. Archaeology mm-hmm. jobs wasn't that you know I wouldn't apply for that because I've been out of that for some time, right, okay. and. The, the job I had, I didn't have really any qualifications in the respect of that area. Ah, right, okay. So I don't know if that was what made it problematic to find a job. And where, this is a very strange question, where was your head at that particular point? Were you thinking, you know, like people, at particular ages, we've all got a certain kind of thought about who we are, where we're going, what type of person we are, <laughs> what we're interested in, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Certainly I have, anyway. Was your head in a particular place that was making you think, I'm actually going to be somebody who's running their own business, or I'm actually going to be somebody who's looking for a job because I quite like the security of work for somebody else, or I'm going to be somebody who's going to make things, or whatever, you know, what, yeah. what were you thinking? I was probably more in the place I'm going to run my own business right, okay. than get an employment as such. Mm. Uh, yes. That was more and more my thinking. And what I did then, because... Obviously, when I was working still in Sweden with this company who was working with training for management leadership and so on, um, the package that I put together was, as I said, combining video, sound, uh, audio tapes, uh, mm. and written materials. And that was just in the beginning of the CD-ROMs when they started right. to emerge, so the very okay. first sort of um, computer-based learning packages, more or less. Um, so when I come over after I had my daughter uh, in 97 I was thinking okay I'll go and do a course in in and learning about uh, multimedia mm-hmm. good idea because I could see yeah. how how all this could be very good as combination mm-hmm. for training mm-hmm. for creating training materials yeah. um, so I decided to do an H&D in multimedia Right. Um, and first I did some printing a course in, in uh, printed materials as well because I was working with better design and printed materials so I did all this through um, Glasgow College of Building and Printing right of course yeah. connection yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah yeah. I mean you feeling quite confident about the, the future everything was or was you know again I think how people think about the world and what yeah. what they think the opportunities they deserve don't deserve or confident about their place can have a big, huge impact on 
how things develop. So I just wonder what your mindset is. Yeah, well, my, my mindset this then was, of course, I had my daughter in 97, and I got my son, who was born in 99. So I was doing some courses in between there, yeah. and then I continued after he was born as yeah. well to finish off. Um, so uh, it was very much about family life. Right, so you're kind of thinking, actually, this but is what I'm the, interested in at the moment. Is uh, not really, because no. that wouldn't just only fulfill my life right. but doing okay. the studying as well was giving me other right. sides uh, of life and I was very engaged in the community as well where we, where, right. where we were living where I'm still living uh, living in a street in Glasgow which is very much almost like a small village in itself yeah. and getting engaged with the other things that was happening in the community there and setting mm-hmm. up residence association and, and yeah. engaging people okay uh, actually that is something I would quite like to get into at some point, just because I think that informs some of the things that led to what you're doing now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, so you're, I don't want to talk about anything you don't want to talk about, obviously, but clearly at some point you, you're, you've got a partner and you've got kids and, you got, <laughs> and you're juggling all sorts of things. Yes. And then you're more a kind of free agent and yeah, yeah, what yeah. you're thinking. No, no, I separated from my partner. It didn't work out for various reasons uh, yeah. in um, 2004, I think. It, no, 2003 it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but um, thankfully I was in the position then I could stay on where we were uh, and I had a network of friends and families around me who were helping out with lots of things because as a single mother, yes, you do juggle a lot. Yeah. <laughs> There's no yeah. discussion about that. But I had then finished um, my course when I started to work with uh, as a freelance web designer uh, and web editor and working mm. with accessible web designs, yeah. which is, of course, where I got in contact with you the first time. <laughs> That's right. Actually, I was talking to, that, to part of that. I was trying to figure out when that was. I couldn't even remember it. the context of it, but I think, and I could be wrong, but I think I was doing some work for SAFE. Yes. And I was running courses for Scottish Accessible Information Forum. And one of the courses I was running for them was accessible web design. And I think you come on you come on to one of those courses. Is That's that right. Correct? That's right, yes. <laughs> uh, because I was then, uh, well, part one of my freelance jobs as a god was working for SAFE. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so I absolutely needed to get into this with being an yeah. accessible web designer and being able to create accessible websites. That's right. It's amazing how... That was in 2000 and th- when? 2003, 4, somewhere yeah. around there. I can't exactly pinpoint yeah. the date. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it seems a while ago. Uh, yeah. Goodness me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you, I think you heard from what I've been saying. I've never been just working, concentrating on one thing. Yeah. There's always been a few parallel strands. Yeah. Uh, so I was quite involved in the community at the same point as right. well. So, so you're running a business, mm-hmm. which at that point would be, you're thinking, a web development? Web, web designer, business. web developer. Web designer business. Editor. You're heavily involved in community Activism, I suppose you would call it, is that yeah, right? Yeah, uh, So you're, you're protecting, I've probably got this wrong, but I think there was something going on in a local park. In the yeah, local park development was one of the things. Another thing was sort of, uh, building projects or planning proposal that right. was sort of quite threatening to the community I was staying in. Yeah. So did you become a kind of leading player in that, or were you... Uh, yeah, I would say I probably was. I was uh, part of the small group who set up the residence association, who led the work uh, in respect of objecting to these planning proposals, which right. the community were very up in arms against. Right. Um, and actually, 
as a back end of that, I become involved in the community council. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So is that your first kind of involvement in what you call local politics? Yes, I would say it is, though I started to think in more, could you say, political terms when I actually had my children. Right. And it was so much discussing, oh, what you, why didn't you go back to Sweden? I mean, you got so great, you know, uh, parental leave right. and things like that compared to what it was here in, right. in, okay. in so Scotland, in the UK. And I was yeah. thinking about, yeah, but why, why does that come from? It's not, it's not just the culture that is better. It's, it's because it's political decisions. Yeah. And I was thinking there's so many things in our everyday life that are affected by political decisions. And I would say, actually, 90% of them are taken on a local level. Yeah. Uh, so that was when I... I shouldn't say I was thinking about getting into to local uh, government politics, but uh, anyway, the, the, the thinking about it was there mm-hmm. then. It's interesting because, you know, you need to be of a certain education and a certain and view of the world, be enlightened to a certain extent to be able to even think like that. <laughs> I think. To be able to think that you can you can be an actor and change in the local community or an actor and change in a bigger context takes an education and a way of thinking, I think, anyway. Uh, and I say that just because, I mean, a lot of the people I know have <laughs> got very similar views to yourself. But I also, a lot of people I know are not interested in politics. And they're not interested in politics from, from what I can see is because they don't believe that that's the thing that's making the world round about them and changing things or, or is responsible for where they are and what opportunities they have and what opportunities their friends have mm-hmm. and the house that they live in and the, you know, yeah. the inequality in society. They don't seem to make the connection yeah. <laughs> uh, or the, the idea that they can change that. Mm-hmm. So I suppose, to a certain extent, not disenfranchised because that's a kind of external thing, but they're not, uh, they're not participating in that civic <laughs> world because they don't know they can, part- they can participate. They don't know that they can have any effect on it. Yeah, no, I, um, I always find that upsetting and it's quite sad. Yeah. No, I agree, <laughs> but what's interesting now with, with the new administration here in the city chambers in the, in the council um, community empowerment it's, it's not just words yeah. and I think that is very much what the action of community empowerment wants to do it's to actually making people realise that they can change yeah. things they can change things, get together and do things together, so for example in my, my role as a councillor um, I was election, elected to the council in a by-election in 2015 that was the first, first of my actual political role uh, as such um, as council, then I encouraged people to set up residents associations if they if they had issues they wanted mm-hmm. to deal with. If they were not happy with how the housing association were doing things, they have all the rights to set up a, a, their own residents association yeah. if they want to and to forward their opinions about things. So your way of thinking is, is clearly influenced by your background. Yeah. It's influenced by the fact you come from Sweden yes. and the kind of culture of in Sweden related to this kind of stuff, uh, which <laughs> which makes you get involved in this community thing and makes you think about things in a particular way. Is it? You know, would Possibly, you say that's yes. True yeah. yeah, I do think it's because a lot. Uh, which leads you to. So, how did you get from being involved in a community activism to basically becoming a 
a councillor, mm-hmm. a politician in, yeah, yeah. in that it's sense. Yeah. How do you get from there to thinking, actually, I'm going to be elected and do things in the context of yeah, <laughs> the yeah. council? Uh-huh. Now, as I said, I was starting thinking more in political terms around, probably around the millennium shift, I would say. Um, not just due to my own situation with the family and children and childcare and all these kind mm-hmm. of things, but also actually what was happening in the UK, uh, the millennium shift, we had you know huge amounts of money being poured into the London area in respect mm-hmm. of infrastructures being built and so on. Um, and I think it actually was an article in the Herald who sort of made me think a bit more about um, Scotland as a country as such, um, pointing out... The, the, huge, the vast number of projects that was getting uh, lots of money and funding um, and the consequentials through the Barnet formula had been put out of play. Right. So Scotland didn't get the consequential money as right. possibly should have had yeah. at that point. So I was thinking, God, this is some kind of unbalance here. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't do much about it, but then the community activism, etc., and being active uh, in the community council, I got in contact with lots of councillors as well and speaking to them. Uh, I became a member of the SNP in 2010 right. and that was purely for looking at policies and how people were working various things and I thought they were the ones closest to what I what liked, believed, what I yeah. believed in yeah. then. Um, in 2012 when it was clear that it was going to become uh, an independence yeah. referendum in Scotland right. I decided to become active right. as well so I, I went down to my local branch to the AGM mm. and Possibly because some of the people that I knew me since and what I've been doing in the community, they asked me if I wanted to stand for a position as a women's officer, and I became a women's officer then right. okay. uh, for that. So, I mean, this might be an aside, but before you became involved at that level, would you have uh, characterised your politics as left and right, or was it something entirely different? Probably more left than right, but I wouldn't say I'm it's left not left. Thought about it though, either, no, either. I didn't think it. I think it's more yeah. about get things done. Right, okay, and just a kind Do of things. approach yeah. to life yeah. informed. I don't like this. Or yeah. there's lots of people here who don't like this. Okay, let's get together and do something about yeah. it. Okay. So, I mean, that must have been a pretty big, exciting part of your life at that point. I mean, you, there's not that many people. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. A, I shouldn't say it took over my life, but it did. I was very involved in all of, of uh, the referendum campaigning, etc. Yeah. And on the back of that, I was thinking of getting into to local politics and, and stand. I had thought, or was thinking about sort of how the council election, the, the, which years would fall, and 2017 was the year I had sort of, okay, I'll be putting myself forward for that Uh, and then in 2015 thanks to uh, the uh, election results in the general election there was lots of people getting elected to Westminster obviously from the SNP and uh, a couple of them had been councillors here or were councillors here in Glasgow City Council Uh, so there was um, um, by-elections for those positions I decided to put myself forward then in 2015 for one of the by-elections which I was very Bucket of win. So did you you did that in the context of the groups you were already part of? Yeah. SNP group. And, yeah. Right. Okay. And clearly you you got support. Yes. You know, by yes. those within that, and then support by people voting. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I can't say how proud I was uh, when I was re-elected in 2017. Yeah. Because it's it's you know it's a kind of confirmation I've done a no, a no bad job as yeah, they say. Yeah. Absolutely. No, it's incredible. Uh, as you know. Just to say, from a personal point of view, somebody's known you for 
I don't know, you said 2003 or something? This is what? This is 2018. 15, 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Somebody's known you for quite a long time. Congratulations. That's bloody amazing. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very, very much. Very much, yes. And, uh, you know, I'm proud of you. Thank you. So, I've seen it in you. So, so anyway, you become a politician and as much as you become a councillor. Yeah. Uh, how do you become the Lord Provost well, the, of Glasgow? Uh, you get appointed, well, uh, there is an election within the first full council that meets after the election. Uh, and each party can put forward a, a nominated candidate for becoming mm-hmm. Lord Provost. And uh, usually because it has been for a very long time. Uh, Labour obviously have led the, the council for many years and they have had a, an overall majority. Mm-hmm. But in the election 2017, there was no party emerged with an overall majority. Right. SNP is the largest group of councillors in, in the council with 39 councillors out of 85, but this is not an overall majority. So it's not guaranteed that it would be in yeah. a, a their candidate would become Lord Provost. So there was an election in the chamber, mm-hmm. uh, and I was happy to be supported by the Greens as well. So yeah, you say you were happy to be. You might, did, were you campaigning on? How did this happen? No, I, I didn't. I didn't campaign on the, on it amongst I the councillors. I think you were campaigning. No. But I just you know, how did? There was a nomination you? within the party group first, yeah. and there were actually a few other candidates as well. But yeah. there was an election within the party groups. Right. Uh, in the party groups, so but this, I this must have been incredibly fast. All that's happening. Yeah. You know, one minute we've got no SNP councillors, next minute we've got the majority, all these new people, yeah. new faces. But it doesn't happen just, you know... No, it doesn't happen overnight and no. as much as people have been working away and doing... Yes, because work. of course they have put together a manifesto which we've yeah. been working on for a long time prior yeah. to that. Yeah. So uh, it, it's not that it just happens. Yeah. You have prepared for the possibility and with yeah. the, the polling figures, etc., there was a clear possibility that we would... Uh, be the majority group yeah. in in the council. Right. So uh, there was preparations made before that, but I, as a person, I couldn't prepare. I couldn't know that I would be, become the Lord Provost mm-hmm. prior to that meeting we had, the full council meeting we had mm-hmm. on the eighteenth of uh, May. You, last did people year. put themselves forward, or is it? Or uh, are you persuaded to put yourself forward? How does it work? Well, do you, do you ask? You have to be nominated. Right. So if you want to put yourself forward, I had a, I had the approach and been asked if I possibly would be thinking about doing that, and, right. and I was happy to put myself forward and ask mm-hmm. for nominations. And what were you thinking at that point? Were you, were you thinking, yeah, no, I can do this? <laughs> initially, it was like me. What? <laughs> but I think I don't know if it's. There's lots of talk about this with women when they're being asked to do things. It's right. very easy for us women to say, oh, no, but he would much better or she right. would much better. Oh, no, okay. I can't do this and so on. But because I've been working in regards of uh, empowering women uh, right. and so on. So that's in the mix, you would say? Yes. idea. Yes, it is. And uh, I realised, okay, this is, um, I'm being asked if I possibly can think about doing this. I need to sit down and think about it. And, you know, thinking about it, yes, I had been a Bailey, which is someone who can represent on behalf of the Lord Provost. Yeah. Uh, I was elected as a Bailey, or appointed as a Bailey, uh, fairly soon after my election in 2015. So I had those two years and, and working and representing on behalf of the Lord Provost's various occasions as well. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I know a bit that, about yeah. what, yeah. Was, what I was getting into, right, if you put okay. it that way. Okay. Um, and at the same time, I was thinking back of, of my experiences through lots of other things, which all we haven't had time to mention today, actually. Um, there's so many 
things I can draw on on my background experience, which mm-hmm. I maybe never thought I would have mm-hmm. use of any point mm-hmm. later mm-hmm. on in time in life. But in this role, as a lot of these things comes together, including language and stuff like that. Language is one yeah. of them. Yeah. Also, being able to speak to anyone at any level in society. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's something I have with me through the work I was doing at university as well, mm-hmm. and work at the museum, and you know, meeting mm-hmm. people from all walks of life. Is it an advantage, uh, do you think, that you are an outsider in as much as you come from Sweden? Is that an advantage or a disadvantage? Um, it's interesting, of course, I thought, God, what are people going to say? A bit as I said, you know, with the piping and so on, mm-hmm. what's it going to hear? I'm Swedish coming and, and yeah. into... But it is the fantastic reception of the people and it's the openness of Glasgowians, etc. It's been incredible in that respect. Um, I think I have a slight advantage, actually. Right. From coming from us because I've come here as a tourist. I've seen, you know, the tourist side of the city mm-hmm. and doing the tourist attraction and get to know the city. I come here as someone who's moved to the city and get to know the city in that respect as well. Uh, and obviously now as a representative for the city. Um, I feel I can talk up Glasgow much yeah. more than actually a lot of Glasgow regions feel they can. I think, there's a, there's always, I think there is a sense that you can see things that people who maybe stayed there the whole, their whole life can't see. Yeah, they take it for granted. Yeah, qualities uh, that are invisible to the to the native that, that are that's obvious just to you. Natural. That's just the way it is <laughs> for people who lived here all their life. Yeah. So you know, you know, the, the openness and friendliness. Maybe. I mean, I think people are more aware of that now because because of tourism and because actually we get told. By the media, that Scots are known as, uh, are particular Glaswegians are known as kind of open and friendly. But prior, to, prior to being told this, we probably never thought about it. No, that, but you, you were, you were prior to being told this <laughs> about it as well. Yeah, although I come from Clybank originally, of course. Rather. A bank is that's a different thing. <laughs> totally, different, totally different place altogether. Uh, so, so not originally uh, Glaswegian. Okay, so so can I, I suppose covered quite a lot of your story. You're now the Lord Provost of Glasgow. Uh, rather than go back, probably it'd be quite a good lid to put on it, just for you to tell me a wee bit about what your aspirations are now uh, in this particular role. Mm-hmm. You know. It's fantastic. This role, I'm, obviously, I'm elected and will be in this position for another four years. Mm-hmm. So up to the next council election. Uh, the things I really want to do during my uh, my time as Lord Provost is, is being ambassador for Glasgow and both inwards and outwards. Right. All these positive things we're talking about Glasgow. There's mm-hmm. a lot of Glaswegians who, as we said, are not quite aware about it. Mm-hmm. It's not just about being open and friendly, but the fantastic culture offering we have here in Glasgow. It's incredible. As well as the very, very good you know, um, new industries that are emerging mm-hmm. in Glasgow as well. Um, I think there's quite a lot of people don't know that the creative sector in Glasgow is huge. Right. There's lots of small companies, individuals who are working in that. There's the third largest employment sector now in Glasgow. Right, I didn't know that. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So lots of things that well, I mean, talking, uh, you know, being ambassador inwards for Glasgow mm-hmm. is actually getting people, Glaswegians, open, open their eyes to what a fantastic city it is. Mm-hmm. Most people know that. But there are more new fantastic things that are happening all the time, which people maybe not are aware about. Well, I certainly didn't know that. I mean, that's that is really interesting. I mean, being somebody who's kind of involved in the creative side of things, uh, sometimes I'm probably a bit blinkered to, to what is actually going on and what the opportunities are mm-hmm. that I could perhaps uh, plug into if I knew yeah. about them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, another sort of industries that are emerging in Glasgow, like the... Uh, 
the space industry. Yeah, I do know about that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> because I went to, uh, a few years ago, I went to one of these uh, TED Talks in Glasgow. Yeah. There was a TED Talk in Glasgow, and there was a guy who came from a satellite company making these mini satellites. Mm-hmm. You probably know about it. Uh, and he told us, that was maybe two years ago or three years ago, that Glasgow was one of the biggest centres in the world for these satellites. Yep. And his company was one of the most important. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I thought, amazing. Yeah. yeah, no, it is. But I know there's been companies relocating here from yeah, Canada, etc. Right. Because they have this conglomerate of, of very uh, good space companies. At that point, I thought a satellite was something very big. Uh, and he showed us a satellite, which was a, like a tube. Yeah. And I think it was only about three or four feet. Yeah. And hi, and this was a modern satellite that yeah, you yeah. put up into the sky. Uh, well, so we've had so many inventions coming from yeah. Glasgow, everything from you know James Watt to Lister, etc. Yeah, prominent yeah. names in Glasgow, but those names are here. There are people are equivalent to them here today in Glasgow. Yeah, so we're following on. Yeah. From innovation in the past, and you know, innovation in thinking as well as yeah. innovation in creating things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And we have, you know. Uh, Talking about the creative sec- sector, the conservatoire, yeah, uh, of which is you know one of the top five conservatoires in the world. Yeah, it's I incredible. see that poster. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the hydro, that's another, well, creative sectors, music sector, the hydro is the second best music venue in the world. Yeah, and I've been in there as well. We went to the uh, MTV Awards yeah. a couple of years yeah, ago. Yeah. It's unbelievable. <laughs> so it is, we yeah. have all these things going on. And so we, Glaswegians, we have so many, many things to be really be proud and boast about. Yeah. And possibly that is, Glaswegian can be humble in that respect as well. Yeah, I think you're right. We don't, we don't sort of go out and talk enough about how good and what good things we have in the city. We have so often been fed by the media how poor we are and, you know, illnesses, etc. But Glasgow has a different side to it as well, which is, I would say, yes, we have issues that the council and we people in Glasgow has to deal with, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that shouldn't take away from all the positive sides we have as well. And you see that as part of your Yeah, control. that is part of my job. And go out to the world and tell the world how fantastic Glasgow is. Okay, thanks Eva. I think we'll stop there. That was fantastic. Very inspirational. Okay, thank you. <laughs> thanks for taking the time to chat to me. I no, really thank appreciate you. it. It was great to meet you. Okay, thanks. Well, that was Eva Bolander signing off and I think you will agree with me when I say that Eva is a great ambassador for Glasgow and the perfect person to have as Glasgow's Lord Provost. So I was very, very pleased to meet up with her again and have that chat. As usual, if you've got any questions, uh, please send them to us. It's either jim at glasgowestend.co.uk or pat at glasgowestend.co.uk or catch Pat on the Twitter at Glasgow's West End. Thanks for listening and catch you the next time.